following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, this morning, um, I don't know whether you're familiar at all with the traditional Christian calendar. It goes through the year, different seasons of the, of the church year. But at the moment, we're in the season of Epiphany, what we call Epiphany. It comes after Advent, the Christmas season, and it leads into the season of Lent, which gets us ready for Easter. And generally, in the season of Epiphany, uh, Christians focus on the life of Jesus. It's a time, really, for being in the Gospels. It's a time for thinking about the life and the teaching the miracles uh, of Jesus, his interactions and relationships with people, so that by looking into the life of Jesus, we gain this epiphany. We gain this revelation of who he is. The idea is that we're, we're being blown away by the identity of Jesus all over again. And that's often what this time of year is about. That's what the season of epiphany is. And so I thought today that we would look at a passage in the Gospel of Luke, that gives us, I think, some real insight into who Jesus is and hopefully gives us a bit of an epiphany moment of uh, the whole person of Jesus. Grant Marshall has spoken for the last couple of weeks and has just kept us Christ-centered in Ephesians 1, looking at Jesus and then allowing us not only to look at Jesus, but in a sense look through Jesus and allow Jesus to be the lens through which we look at all of life. And he did a great job of that. Um, This morning, uh, I want to lead us to a text in Luke chapter 4. Uh, where we're going to look at the experience of Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus experiencing these temptations from Satan. And look at what this passage says to us about the identity of Jesus, the Son of God. So Luke chapter 4, and I'll read for us the first uh, 13 verses of this chapter. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. It's probably the biggest understatement in the Bible. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Well, I am now the father of three boys. It's a bit crazy. It takes a bit of getting used to. I can tell I didn't really go into parenting ever thinking that we'd have three boys. You wouldn't, would you? You're going to have three boys, uh, and you know we're slowly adjusting to this reality. Uh, it didn't start very well, I have to say. Uh, when we sat Joshua, our oldest, down, 
and told him that we're going to have another boy, a third boy, uh, his first response was, there's already too many boys in this family, don't let the baby come out. So it wasn't a happy start. It wasn't a good start for him. <laughs> but but he's, he's slowly adjusted now, and he absolutely loves Ezra, our new baby. And uh, is, is a great, he's a great big brother now. And our, our middle son, Lawson, is also really doting on Ezra, absolutely loves him. And it's interesting to watch. It, Lawson's way of uh, showing affection to Ezra is to put things on top of him. And that's just like, obviously in his mind, he thinks that's how I show love. I'm going to put stuff on him. So he puts a DVD on top of him, or he puts a piece of Lego on top, or just a toy, and that's his thing. You know, he goes and just puts stuff on him. So um, obviously that takes a bit of monitoring to make sure that the appropriate things are being put on him. But they are getting on really well with Ezra. And um, we're just kind of learning how to be a, an all-boy family, a three-boy family, trying to figure out how many clothes we can just keep on handing down and how many toys we can just put back in circulation and how much tomato sauce we need to get for the next 20 years, all that sort of stuff that you do when you've, when you've got boys. So it's, it's been interesting for me uh, coming to this passage at this particular point in my life because what I've noticed uh, about this text is that I think it's a lot about what it means to be a son. Uh, it might be surprising, and you might not immediately get that from this chapter. I don't think I'm just reading in my own experience here, even though I'm surrounded by sons. I genuinely think that this passage is a lot about what it means for Jesus to be the son, what it means for him to truly be the son of God. If you look at the context of this passage, where it sits in the Gospel of Luke, it's surrounded by this whole issue of sonship. The thing that's just happened before we get to this passage is that Jesus has been baptized by John in the Jordan. And uh, if you're familiar with that story, you know that Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water and you have the voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father. And what, is, what does he say? This is my son. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus has just been declared to be the son of God at his baptism. That's the immediate preceding event that's happened in his life before these temptations. And then Luke just has a little break in his narrative before we get to the temptations in order to give us his genealogy. And interestingly, he traces the genealogy of Jesus, if you look at the end of chapter 3, right back to Adam, who he calls in verse 38, the son of God. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has just been declared to be the Son of God. Now Adam is specifically mentioned as being the Son of God. And if you were here in our Advent series, uh, you remember we talked about Matthew's genealogy. Matthew only goes back as far as Abraham, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Wants us to show that Je wants to show that Jesus is connected all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. And then in the temptation narrative itself, twice. When Satan tempts Jesus, the first time and the last time, he begins with the words, If you are the Son, if you are the Son of God, then do this or this. And I think those words are as important, maybe more, than the temptations themselves. If you are the Son of God. What Satan is really testing here is Jesus' understanding of what it means to be a son. What kind of son will he be? And the implication for us, therefore, is what does it mean for us to be sons and daughters, for us to be children of God, with Jesus as our elder brother. So let's see how this plays out in the temptations themselves. The first temptation, Satan comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 3, and the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, 
tell the stone to become bread. Now, this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Satan has appeared. In the chronology of the New Testament, it's the first time that Satan appears. The first time we meet Satan in the New Testament is at the temptation of Jesus. And it's interesting that the first appearance of Satan in the New Testament shares a lot of similarities with the first appearance of Satan in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3, where he appears to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Both times, Genesis 3 and Luke 4, Satan shows up for the express purpose of tempting an individual. Both times, interestingly, the temptation revolves around food. For Eve, it was the forbidden fruit. For Jesus, it's turning stones to bread. And so there's, there's a sense of deja vu here with this passage, and it's no coincidence. What, what Luke's wanting us to see is that this passage of Jesus' temptations, it's like the fall passage of the New Testament, except it's not going to be a fall. But it's the same scene being replayed over again. Humanity has arrived again at this crucial intersection where a decision needs to be made between allegiance and obedience to God or allegiance and obedience to Satan. It's like we've come full circle right through the Old Testament and now here we are, same situation again. Then it was in a garden, now it's in a desert. But the same point, is humanity going to be faithful or not? And at a deeper level, I think what Luke is doing is presenting Jesus to us as the new Adam. You see this a little bit in the rendition of the story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you parents have got that. And in that story, Satan is depicted as a snake, which is very deliberate and I think very smart. When I was reading Josh that story a few months ago now of the temptation of Jesus, he saw the snake and immediately he said, oh yeah, yeah there's another snake somewhere. That, that looks like that other snake. And he was flicking back through the pages of the Bible and he got back to the fall, Genesis 3. And he, he connected, he was able to connect the snake that Jesus is tempted by here, depiction of Satan, with the snake back in the Garden of Eden. He was a bit confused because the snake was a different color and had different spots. But it was the same idea, and that's exactly right. That this is the same story, and Jesus is being presented here as the new Adam. Adam has been called the son of God. Now Jesus has been called the son of God. And the question that hangs in the air here is what kind of son will he be? Will he be the kind of son Adam was, unfaithful, disobedient? Or is he going to be a different kind of son? And the answer comes in Jesus' response in verse 4, where he says, It is written, quotes from Deuteronomy, and says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. If you translated that phrase into Hebrew, the word for man is literally Adam. Adam. Adam will not live on bread alone. And what Jesus is doing with, those, with that one statement, it's not, he's not just fending off the devil. He's showing himself to be the new Adam, the new head of a new humanity. He, he has, in a sense, re-entered the scene in biblical history. He's re-entered the fall scene. And he's restaged that whole event now with himself as the main character. And he's relived it. He's relived Adam's temptation in the garden, except he's done it in the desert. And where Adam was disobedient and unfaithful and ultimately not a faithful son of God, Jesus has shown himself to be the truly faithful son of God, the new Adam, 
the true, obedient Adam, son of God, that God intended for humanity to be. And as the new Adam, therefore, Jesus is the representative of this whole new humanity. That's where it becomes real for us. That just as Adam was the, the head and source of the human race, Jesus now, as the Son of God, is the head of a whole new humanity that's coming forth from him, made up of all those who love him, made up of all those who are united to him through faith. So you see, there's a lot more going on here than just Jesus resisting the devil or Jesus defeating temptation. Jesus is being shown as the true Son of God, the true, new, real Adam, the faithful one. Now, have a look, move on to the next temptation. Satan takes Jesus to this point where in an instant he can somehow see all the kingdoms of the world, all the territories of the world, and he says to Jesus, all these can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. This temptation, I think, taps into a second major stream that's going on in this passage, a second major background, which is the experience of Israel in the wilderness. When you think about it, Israel was promised a similar thing. God promised to Israel, I'm going to give you all these territories, Israel. I'm going to give you all these kingdoms, all the kingdoms of Canaan, all the dominions in this beautiful piece of land, if you will only worship me. It's like the opposite of what Jesus is being tempted to worship Satan. Israel was invited to worship God and therefore receive all of this dominion. And there's so much similarity in the scene of Jesus' desert temptation with the experience of Israel going through the wilderness. Israel, too, was called the Son of God. This is one of the names that Israel has in the Old Testament. When, when Moses stood before Pharaoh, God said through Moses to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may worship me. Talking about Israel, let my son go. He refers to Israel as his son. And Israel journeyed through the Sinai wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus goes through the desert for 40 days. He's reliving the experience of Israel. Just as he's relived the experience of Adam, he's also now reenacting the story of Israel's exodus, the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings through the desert. And so again, the question hangs there, what kind of son is he going to be? Is he going to be the same kind of son that Israel was in the wilderness, largely grumbling, complaining against God and his leaders? Or is he going to be a different kind of son? And the answer comes in Jesus' response to Satan the second time, verse 8. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Reaches back into Israel's scriptures, Israel's law, book of Deuteronomy, and says, We're commanded to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh alone. And in that statement, Jesus shows himself to be not just a good man, not just a moral man. He shows himself to be the true Son of God, the new Israel. The Son of God that Israel was ultimately unable to be, Jesus is able to be because he is truly faithful and truly obedient. He's stepped back into that scene in history, back into Israel's journey. And he's walked it through in 40 days, been faithful where Israel was unfaithful, and now shown himself to be the truly qualified son of God. He is now the one in whom God's plans and purposes are coming to fulfillment and to fruition. He is now the light of the world. 
He is now the one through whom God's salvation is being extended to all people. So this passage, I think, is a lot more than just how to resist temptation. You know, that's how I've tended to see it. It's just a little summary of how we should resist temptation like Jesus. But I think at a deeper level, Jesus here is showing himself to be the Son of God and showing us what it means to be the Son of God, that he is the true Adam for us. And he is the true Israel for us, the true Son of God who has relived the human experience and relived Israel's experience and now emerged as the truly faithful Son of God. But what about this last temptation? Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem and has him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here because God will look after you, basically. But what I hear in that temptation is an echo of another story in the Bible, but not one that's earlier in the biblical story, one that's a little bit later. I think this is a foreshadowing of something that happens at the cross. Later on in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 23, you don't need to turn there, but it's the scene of the crucifixion. And Jesus is hanging on the cross in his, really his final minutes or final hours. And as he hangs there, and as Luke tells the story, Jesus undergoes another three temptations. It's like three temptations at the beginning of his ministry and three at the end. And these final temptations are all basically the same. One comes from the soldiers, one comes from the crowd, one comes from one of the criminals beside him. And each time it's the same, save yourself. It's what these groups repetitively say to Jesus. If you're the son of God, if you're the God's Messiah, if you're the chosen one, sounds similar to Satan, doesn't it? If you really are, then save yourself. And it just sounds so similar to what Satan himself is suggesting to Jesus when he tells him to jump off the temple. Save yourself, Jesus, or at least invoke God to save you. In other words, the real temptation is use your position of sonship to your advantage. You are the son, so use it to get your way and use it to make God do what you want him to do for you. And use it to, your, to exploit it for your own selfish ends. You're the son, Jesus, so use it. Use it selfishly. Get yourself off the cross. Throw yourself off the temple. Use your sonship. Milk it for all it's worth. And that is exactly what Jesus refuses to do. And this takes us, I think, to the heart of what it means for him to be the son of God. On the cross, he resolutely refuses to use his position of sonship to rescue himself, or even try to invoke God to rescue him. Instead, what Jesus does is what any good son would do. He trusts his father. And that, I think, is the heart of what it means for Jesus to be the son of God, that he is the one who uniquely and resolutely trusted his father. He trusted God consistently on the cross. He trusted the father consistently through his desert temptations. And isn't that exactly what Adam and Israel both failed to do, ultimately? To truly trust God. Adam failed to trust in the goodness and the provision of God in the garden, providing so many things for him, and instead tried to use his position of sonship to his advantage by eating the fruit that he wasn't able to eat. Israel had this position of sonship, but they failed to trust God. They failed to trust God's provision. They failed to trust God's protection. 
and God's promise that he would give them this land, and instead they grumbled and complained and ultimately failed to take full possession of the land because they failed to trust God's victory on their behalf. Adam stumbled, Israel stumbled because they failed to trust God. And yet here comes Jesus in the Gospels as the Son of God who truly, faithfully trusts his heavenly Father, trusts in the Father's provision, trusts in the Father's protection, trusts in the Father's authority, all without putting God to the test, but he trusts consistently, does this throughout his life, and then on the cross, supremely trusts, entrusts himself to the one who judges justly without taking things into his own hand. Jesus trusts the Father, and that really, more than anything else, I think, is what sets him apart as the unique Son of God, that he alone trusts the Father and is therefore qualified to be called the Son of God. Now, it's easy, I think, in view of that, to come straight over to our lives and say, what we should do then is trust God like Jesus did. And that's true, but I think it misses a step. I think the important step here that as the Son of God, Jesus invites us into his sonship. He doesn't just send us out and tell us, well, you should trust God the way I did. You should be able to fend off temptation the same way I did if you just trust God. What Jesus shows us through these temptations is that he has fought Satan and won. And he is the son of God that we could never be. But he invites us into this identity so that we can share in the sonship of Jesus as sons and daughters of God, as adopted sons and daughters of God, that we can be brought into this family now through Jesus. Because honestly, the way that I used to read this passage, when you read about Jesus in the desert, let's be honest, I read it and felt a lot of pressure. This pressure to deal with temptation in my life the same way Jesus does, almost effortlessly. Like he's gone without food and water for 40 days and he just still seems to have no trouble and just fending off temptation with a single blow. I look at it and I just can't do that. And it can so easily lead to guilt and pressure because we can't be like Jesus was. But now with an understanding of Jesus as the Son of God, honestly, I read this passage and my visceral response is relief. Because Jesus is the Son I can never be. He's dealt with temptation in a way I never could. Of course I can't. He's fought Satan in a way I never could. He's won this victory that I never could. He's dealt with this for me so that I can be accepted as a son regardless of how I fare in temptations. Regardless of how good or bad or faithful or unfaithful I am, I am chosen and accepted as a son because of Jesus. He's been the son and he's been through these, te- these temptations on my behalf and for me. And I think when you get that into your bones, it does help you just to sit back a bit and not feel so much guilt and so much pressure but to rest in our identity as sons and daughters of God because Jesus has accomplished this for us. In some sense, we were there in the desert with him, participating in those temptations, and he's taken us through them and out the other side. So now we are chosen and loved. We're sons and daughters in the Son because of what he's done. I think it's only as you get really grounded in that reality that we are already sons and daughters, chosen and loved unconditionally, that you've got any platform to actually pursue this identity of trusting God as Jesus did. I think the mistake we make is we just assume that this is WWJD stuff. It's just what would Jesus do? And we can go straight from Jesus did this 
look how he dealt with temptation, therefore I should do this because that's what Jesus... I think it's just a recipe for depression. We just end up feeling guilty, ashamed, and overwhelmed with our inability to live the life that's expected of us. But when you're grounded deeply in our sonship and daughtership, then out of that deep acceptance, God loves me no matter what, I am chosen as a son, then we can begin expressing what that means, to trust God out of that deep anchoring that my identity doesn't depend on it, but I can still live this out and I can begin to express and explore what it means to really trust the Father in situations of temptation and trial, not to try and earn God's favor, not because my standing with him depends on it in any way, but because this is what it means to live out of who I already am, a child of God. It means to learn to trust the Father. So I'll try and make this practical for you. What does it mean to trust the Father in situations of temptation, situations of testing? Well, for me, right now, honestly, the biggest temptation I face right now is to be impressive. Right? Honestly, that's, that's my temptation. I want to try and sound clever. I want to try and use big words. I want to try and impress you with my unique insights. You know, I want you to like me. This is the temptation for me, is to want to be liked as a preacher and to play to that and to pander to that. So then the question becomes, well, what does it mean for me in the middle of this temptation that I'm facing in real time right now? What does it mean for me to be a son of God? Not the son of God that Jesus was, but to be adopted sons. What does it mean for me to trust the Father as Jesus did? I think it means for me to really believe deeply and honestly that God is at work in the moment of preaching. And that whenever Scripture is proclaimed, something always happens. The Spirit always works, always moves, always ministers. And it certainly doesn't depend on my eloquence, wisdom, insight, whatever. It depends on the work of the Spirit of God in people's hearts. The challenge for me and my temptation is to really trust that. Not just to say it to you, but to trust it in my heart. Because then I can believe that regardless of how well or poorly I communicate, God is at work. And the Spirit of God is moving among us even now, I believe, convicting and encouraging and healing and setting free and just working in the hearts and minds of people. And if I truly believe that, it actually helps me rest even while I preach. That sounds strange? But resting even while I preach, that I can actually just lean back and believe that the Father is at work. It's not all on me. It's not all about me. It's about the work of the Father. So that's something I've worked through very practically on the basis of this passage. What does it mean for me to be the Son of God, adopted Son of God, and what does it mean for me to trust the Father? It means for me to trust Him in the task of preaching and therefore not have to make it about me. So what does it mean for you? What does it mean in the situations of temptation that you're going through? Situations of testing and struggle that you find yourself in the middle of now. What does it mean for you to know deeply that you are a son or a daughter of God because Jesus has been the son for you? What does it mean for you to be drawn into that? And then for you to ask the question, what does it look like to trust the Father as Jesus trusted the Father? Maybe for you the, the real challenge, the real temptation is bitterness and resentment that you're holding on to towards your own parents, towards your own mother or father. It's a huge issue, I think, for people. An inability or an unwillingness to forgive our mothers and fathers for the hurt that's been done, hurt that's been done to you, things that were done, maybe things that weren't done, that should have been done. Maybe it wasn't 
full-scale abuse. Maybe it was just in some way they failed to show you the unconditional love that you really needed. And deep down, you're angry. You're angry about it. You're pretty bitter. And you can hide it and you can mask it, but you carry around a deep resentment towards your mother or your father or both. Now, what does it mean for you in view of Jesus' temptations to really believe that you are a son or daughter of God and that he is your father, that he is your ultimate parent, that your identity ultimately doesn't come from mum or dad, it comes from God the Father who speaks to you and tells you truly who you are, that he's the one who names you, he's the one who loves you, he's the one who has declared how much you're worth, he's the one who has shown you the depth of his love and he did it most on the cross, showed you exactly who you are and what you mean to him. What would it look like for you to gain your identity as a son or daughter from God the Father, rather from your parents who did an imperfect job with you? To truly find your identity in your sonship or daughtership and being adopted sons and daughters with Jesus as your elder brother. And then what does it look like out of that to really trust to really trust God, and I guess that would mean trusting God with their lives, trusting God with your mum and dad, trusting him with the, forgive, with the forgiveness that you need to go through, with the process of forgiveness, a long process probably of forgiveness, a daily process, a process for which you may need help. What would it look like for you to really trust God with their lives and release to him the bitterness and release to him the grudge that you carry and the anger that you're feeling? and release all of that to God and begin the long and painstaking process of forgiveness. That would take a huge amount of trust in Him, I think. Trust in God as your heavenly Father. Trust in Him and a letting go of the past, a letting go of the things that have been done to you and an acceptance that that's going to take time, but that God knows what He's doing in your life. There's a lot of trust that would be involved in that, but maybe that's where you're at. Being a son or daughter of God is going to mean for you trusting God with a process of forgiveness, maybe reconciliation, between you and your mum or dad. There's so many situations represented, but what does it mean for you to be a son or daughter of God? Ultimately, what we are trusting God for is that in the end, he's going to work things out. Not necessarily that tomorrow is going to be better. It may be, it may be worse. But that ultimately, in the end, God will work things out for the good of those who love him and ultimately for his glory. That's the real source of our trust. Not that it's all going to be rosy in the immediate, but that he'll work it out in the end. I love this passage in Revelation. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there. In Revelation chapter 7, which just listen in this passage to the incredible contrast with Jesus in the desert. On that desert scene, that barren, arid environment. And then listen to this, another passage about Jesus in Revelation chapter 7. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think that's just such a wonderful image that the lamb of God was tempted in the desert, desperately hungry, desperately thirsty, and yet one day that same lamb of God will lead us to springs of living water. Isn't that great? The same Jesus. And it's not going to be an arid wilderness anymore. It will be the lush and fertile paradise of the new creation. That's where we're heading. That's what we've got to keep our eye on. That's ultimately what we're trusting God for. That one day, this world will be made new and we'll truly be sons and daughters of God. Truly and deeply anchored in that reality. 
consumed and enveloped in God's love, without all the temptations of this life, without all the struggle, without all the testing, without all the desert experiences that constantly plague us. One day we will be free of those and we will arrive in the real promised land, in the beautiful new creation. And we see these wonderful glimpses of it and we've got to soak our imagination in that. So that's where our hearts are aimed. But in the meantime, en route to that, we pass through this desert place, often a series of desert places that sometimes don't seem like they're going to end. And as we journey through the wilderness of the present life, I pray that we can see this passage, the temptations of Jesus, in a way that breathes some hope into us, not just more pressure, not more guilt and obligation, but real hope and assurance that Jesus here has been and is the Son of God for us. And that as the new Adam, he invites us into this new humanity that's coming forth from him. That as the new Israel, he invites us into the people of God that's centered around him. And as sons and daughters of God, deeply, profoundly anchored in that identity of being children, loved unconditionally, I pray that we could learn what it means, as Jesus did, to really trust, really trust God, with every aspect of our life and our circumstances, to trust Him with our future as well as with our past and our present, to trust that He is faithful, to trust that He is present no matter what, and to trust that He is going to work things out in the end. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray this morning, particularly for people who are going through a real desert experience right now, who are going through some kind of wilderness in their own life, some kind of struggle in their life or a struggle in the life of someone close to them and their family, a close friend, and they feel that struggle really deeply. And I pray, Jesus, that as we think about you in the desert, and we think about you battling Satan like that, desperately hungry and thirsty, Jesus, I pray this morning that each of these people going through a desert time now would be able to take great strength from that. And they would see you shining forth there as the Son of God. They would see you doing all those things for them, not just to prove something, but so that you could sweep us up into your identity as chosen and precious sons and daughters. And I pray that they would find the strength in you to persevere through this desert. And I pray, Lord God, that they would know that you are present even in the desert places, that you haven't gone anywhere, that even if they don't feel it, even if they can't perceive you, that you are right there with them. And I pray they would know the presence of Jesus Christ in the wilderness and the desert that they're going through, carrying them and nourishing them and just speaking to them of your goodness and your faithfulness and their acceptance in you and through you. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We thank you that we are sons and daughters in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz 
Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.